Jesus about blessing, about being blessed by God. In these short, pithy statements we're about to read, we've heard Jesus tell us three things about his disciples. Uh, As we've been studying, first, uh, we hear him tell us we can be blessed by God. Uh, Again and again, he says, blessed are. Blessed are, blessed by God are such and such or so and so. There's hope here. You can be spiritually blessed by God. We've also heard him tell us the kind of person who is God blessed. For instance, he says blessed are the poor in spirit or blessed are those who mourn. What kind of person are they? What what kind of character? What characterizes them uh, in their heart and in their life? That's what he's telling us. And so he invites us really to ask the question about ourselves. Do we have this kind of characteristic? Are we uh, the kind of person who's poor in spirit or, or the kind of person who mourns and so forth? And thirdly, he tells us uh, the kind of blessing they're blessed with. They're blessed by God. What kind of blessing do they have? What is it that God gives us or does for us? For example, the poor in spirit receive the kingdom of heaven. Or for example, the meek inherit the earth. That's the blessing. So Jesus is telling us here what true disciples are. And we should ask ourselves, am I a true disciple? Am I blessed by God? Do I know this blessing? Do I have the kind of change of heart and life that shows I'm a disciple who is a blessed by God person? And do I know what I've received? Do I know what I've been promised in the spiritual and eternal blessings of God? It's not that any of us deserve any of these things. They're all a gift. For example, last week, as we approach the beatitude we're going to study today last week we saw the fourth beatitude blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied they hunger and thirst for it because they don't have it in themselves they need it they might want it or long for it but it has to be supplied from outside of them it has to be given to them right that's why we long for it and The promise is we will be satisfied. We saw this last week. So it's a gift. It's the gift of God. It's the gift of righteousness. We aren't righteous in ourselves, but we are righteous in the righteous one, who is Jesus, who is all our righteousness. If you hunger and thirst to be right with God, God in Christ makes you right with him. It's glorious, right? What a relief. I don't have to work hard to offer God my own righteousness so I can be right with him. But God supplies that which I need. And so we've been saying, as you hear those things, I don't know how they'll strike you. And I know that there's quite a few visitors today. So I'm just helping you orient to this fifth beatitude and kind of the way we're approaching them. Um, There are genuine Christians in this room. And then there are spurious Christians. Some of you think that you are a believer in Jesus Christ, but you don't bear any of these marks. And it it doesn't mean that you're a Christian who just hasn't been changed. It means you're not a Christian. 
So you have to ask, is any of this true of you? But, but many of us in this room fall far short of, of, of what we could be. This is what we confess. Like, I don't long for, hung, long for righteousness like I ought. I don't mourn my sins as deeply as I should. We can, however, grow in these things. The Spirit can work them in us and they can be stirred up in us as we frankly repent that we're not like this. So Jesus can teach us, for instance, to mourn our sins more and more, even as he comforts us with a greater confidence in the comfort of his forgiveness. Forgiveness we have now and forgiveness we have promised for us for forever. So where does that take us? It takes us to the fifth beatitude. The fifth beatitude in today's lesson, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, the merciful being mercied by God. Let me invite you to hear the beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, I'll read verses 1 through 7, uh, and then we'll study this together. This is the word of God. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. For they shall receive mercy. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven. All scripture is God-breathed, and it is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness that the man or woman of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do those works with your word in us by your spirit, even now, we pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy when the famous John Wesley arrived in the early colonies preaching the gospel and he got to Georgia the first governor of Georgia was John Oglethorpe and he he was talking with Wesley and he mentioned that he was in the process of having one of his servants flogged for drinking some of his wine. And Mr. Wesley implored the governor, Governor Oglethorpe, to pardon this man this one time. And Oglethorpe replied, uh, It is of no use, Mr. Wesley. You know, sir, that I never forgive. To which Wesley replied, Well then, sir, I hope You never sin. The point was right out of a text like this and other places. 
It's only the one who has never sinned and never will sin who can afford to say, I never forgive. It's only the one, in other words, who doesn't need any mercy who could afford to say, I don't need to show any mercy. But since, of course, we all sin and we all need forgiveness and we all need mercy, we must therefore be the kind of people who show mercy, says Jesus. Now, let's think this through. What, what is mercy? How does it work? How do I get it? What's the blessing he ties to it? And how important is this really? Those are five questions. Let's start with the first one. What is mercy? What's he talking about here? Well, mercy is showing forgiveness to the undeserving and showing compassion to the one who is in misery. It's, uh, it's loving kindness for those who are in need. It's tenderheartedness toward the miserable in their misery. It's, it's love reaching out to help the helpless. And this virtue, we might call it, was considered a tremendous weakness in the day and age in which Jesus spoke. The Roman Empire, uh, one famous philosopher called it the disease of the soul. It was a sign you didn't have what it took to be a real man. I mean, a real man stands up for himself. A a real man fights his enemy. A real man doesn't take anything from anybody, but he'll give it back. But of course, the God of the Bible isn't like that at all. The God of the ancient Jews wasn't like that, and he isn't today. He is mighty and merciful. He is powerful and loving. He is strong and compassionate. He is full of justice and mercy. He is, after all, the God who took on the weakness of our flesh to be made like us in every way in order, says Hebrews 2, to become a merciful and faithful high priest. In order to what? To help the helpless. And that's us. God is merciful. Now, how does it work? It works in two ways. uh, In broad brush. And I want to illustrate those two ways by two stories which Jesus told. What are the two ways? The two ways, as I've already suggested, are how you treat others when they offend you and how you treat others when they are in misery. In other words, how you respond to being sinned against, but also how you respond to those who are suffering in a world of sin and misery. So take the first situation, how you treat others when they offend you. How do you treat others when they offend you? Jesus tells a parable to teach us about this in Matthew chapter 18. Let me invite you to turn there if you'd like to or just listen in. It's on page 823, just a little further ahead in the Gospel of Matthew. At the bottom in the Pew Bible, verse 21, here's the story. Uh, Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Now, C.S. Lewis says, everyone who says forgive, every, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea. Until, of course, they have something to forgive, right? Uh, we, we hurt others. So we like the idea of forgiveness, but we're hurt by others, and then it, it gets to be hard, right? And if, but, of course, the only way 
not to be hurt by others and therefore never have to forgive anybody is to lock yourself in a room by yourself, slam that door shut and never come out. Never relate to anybody because if you relate to another sinner, you will get your toes stepped on. But if you lock yourself in that room, you'll shrivel up. You'll die a death of loneliness without any intimacy or love. So you're going to be hurt by other people. Peter gets it, right? So he asks the question, well, when is enough enough? I mean, when can I cast them off? When can I write them out? When can I say, I'm done here. You've hurt me long enough. How many times, Jesus? As many as seven times, he says. Do I have to keep on forgiving up to seven times for an offense? Now, before you write Peter off here, uh, some rabbis taught you had to forgive three times. Arguably, Peter's actually thinking generously, expansively, right? And also, Peter is not rebuked by Jesus for saying seven times. Now, Jesus is going to go on to press it further, but he doesn't ridicule him for it. Jesus says to him, what? I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven or 77 times. It depends how you read it and do the math. It can be taken either way. He either says you've got to forgive 77 times or you've got to forgive 490 times, seven times 70. But of course, does Jesus mean that on the 78th or 491st time you can punch them in the face? Well, obviously no, right? He means there is no numerical limit to the number of times you must forgive. His disciples, he says, must be freely and abundantly and repetitively forgiving people. And he is not excusing sin. He is not saying there's never a time to get the civil government involved and get justice or, or put a stop to bad behavior. That's not what he's arguing. But interpersonally, you and I from the heart have to forgive. And so he tells a parable about two servants to explain what he means by this and, and how someone might do this. And the parable is told in three scenes. And you see scene one then here. In the palace throne room of a king who's settling his accounts. Verse 23, Matthew 18. Therefore, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, right here, you, you need to know that Jesus has a sense of humor. People hearing him would have probably chuckled at this idea. Why? No individual could have ever accumulated this kind of size of debt. I mean, 10,000 talents, by some estimates, and of course, estimates change as the American economy inflates, right? Ten years ago, I studied this, and now ten years later, it's probably doubled, in today's dollars. But what's the point? Well, this, by some estimates, is like $4 billion. 
And no one person back then could have ever owed so much. I mean, that was, by some accounts, five times the annual revenue of the entire Roman Empire. Right? So you're kind of like, well, that's a pretty big debt, Jesus. And he continues, verse 25, And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Now, there's really nothing very funny about that. He's a servant. He's being sold off as a slave along with all that he has in order to, well, not make a dent in the debt, frankly. But the servant falls on his knees, verse 26, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Now, nobody's laughing in this room. This is a belly buster. I mean, the crowd probably roared to hear the thought. Jesus, I owe you $4 billion. Give me a little more time. I'll work it out. Give me more time. I'll pay off this debt. I'll pay you everything, right? I I mean, if the guy made 100 grand a year, which is extremely unlikely. And he worked 40 years. It would take a thousand lifetimes if every dollar went to debt and the debt had no interest. He'll never pay this off. Verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now that is astonishing pity. He lets him go free. All is forgiven. What compassion. What a king. Scene two. Outside the palace, verse 28. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now that's peanuts. I mean, it might be four months of income, possibly. But look, seizing him, he began to choke him and say, pay what you owe. (laughs) He's got his hands around his throat. I suppose you can imagine the eyes bulging and the face reddening. And I don't mean by the one being strangled. But this guy is serious. I'm going to get my money back, right? So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Now, what does that sound like? It's the exact same expression as the guy had previously said to the king, right? Yet, verse 30, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. You owe me, he says, treat me justly, and you're locked up until you pay me back. We might say, what a contrast, what, what cruelty, what a, what a wicked servant. Scene three, back in the palace. Verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to the master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant? As I had had mercy on you. There it is. 
I had mercy on you. Shouldn't you have done the same for others? Do you feel the logic of that? Do you feel the weight of that? What's the result here? Verse 34, in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And here's the punchline, verse 35. And so also, my heavenly Father, says Jesus, will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus isn't messing around. The person who refuses to forgive will not be forgiven. But what does that mean? Is Jesus turning the whole gospel of good news on its head? I mean, is he actually contradicting it? Is he teaching salvation by works that we purchase our forgiveness from God by being forgiving towards others? I mean, is that what he means? No. It looks like the story of a king who gave forgiveness and then took it away. That's what it looks like. But what sense would it make for God to save us in the face of our demerits? And then take salvation away from us in the face of our demerits. It's not the story of a king who gave forgiveness and took it away. It is the story of a servant who was offered forgiveness but didn't take it. And the proof of that is in two clues at least. Two clues in the story. Remember the words, I will pay back everything he said, right? He's still clinging to the myth of his self-sufficiency, his self-reliance, his self-ability. How proud he is. I ran up a spectacular debt, but I've got the goods or I can get them to pay it all back. He has no idea what he really owes. And so he thinks little of what it's going to take. And so he thinks little of what was offered in forgiveness. But the second proof is that he does what? He immediately goes out and what? He chokes the other guy, right? Now look, some commentators say, this is just a bad man, right? He's just a bad guy. But it's more than that. I mean, why is he choking this other man? He's choking him because he left the king and he went out dead set on gathering up his funds to pay back the king. He's trying to accumulate money. And why is he doing that? Because he doesn't really believe he's forgiven. He still thinks he owes and has to pay it off. And so it is not the story of a king who gave forgiveness and took it away. It is the story of a servant who did not receive forgiveness, and so he didn't. So he, he he thought he couldn't afford to be forgiving. The logic of the king is: shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had had mercy on you? The logic of the king is sound, and yet it only does its work on the heart of a debtor who actually receives forgiveness who embraces that which is offered, who takes the mercy 
and makes it their own. Then mercy received becomes mercy shown. You must forgive others, not only with your lips, but from your heart, says Jesus. And look, I know that the desire to retaliate is strong. To be angry and strike back when somebody was angry or struck you. To hurt those who hurt you. To harden your heart. To bear a grudge. To grow bitter, resentful, vengeful, and make plans for their destruction. I I totally get it. It's, It's entirely natural. We're all sympathetic here to that. But it is contrary to the gospel. And we've got to let the gospel shape our heart. Which means we've got to start with the poor in spirit. We've got to be poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In order to get to show mercy, blessed are the merciful, you've got to begin with, you are destitute before God. You are bankrupt. You have a debt you cannot pay. And your only hope is to beg and to receive a gift. That was the first beatitude. And then what? You look at your sin and you begin to mourn your sin. And then what? God comforts you with forgiveness, right? And so then you turn to other sinners who also need forgiveness and you're ready to do to them as God did to you. So you and I, we need to keep telling ourselves the gospel. I deserve hell. I have a debt I cannot pay. And Jesus went to hell for me and he paid the debt I could not pay. He paid the debt to God's justice that I might receive God's mercy so that when others offend me, I don't need to give them hell for it. So as one pastor put it, forget, or poet anyway, forget not, thou hast often sinned, and sinful still must be. Deal gently with the erring one, As thy God has dealt with thee. That's the first manner in which mercy works. When you have been offended. But the second, and from another story, is how you treat others when they're in misery. And this is the story found in Luke chapter 10. If you want to turn there to page 869. Or if you just want to listen in. It's a very familiar story. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. We all know the story. At verse 37, at the end of the story, it says that this is a picture of mercy. This is why we turn to this story. For in verse 36, at the conclusion, Jesus says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he, and he said, The one who showed him mercy. So this is about mercy. Now it begins at verse 30 with the parable. Parable. And it begins with a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now that's a road that descends and it's a road that passes through rugged terrain. It's a a road that passes, I'm told, through uh, a place where nothing really lives. And it's a rough cut road that winds around and behind every turn you can't see. And so behind rocks and uh, bends in the road... It was a great place for highway robbers and bandits to assault people and take everything they had. And so here's this man, and here come these thieves, and there are many of them, and they strip the man of everything, and they beat him half to death, and they leave him half dead. Right? 
I mean, they just pulverize him. He's close to death. He's alone and he can't do anything for himself. He's helpless. Verse 31, and now Jesus says, by chance. And you can almost see the twinkle in Jesus' eye that there would be such a thing as chance, right? But by chance, there was a priest. Now here, a priest was associated with the Jewish religion. A priest was a person who was in ministry full-time. A priest was a person who represented the people to God. And a priest is going down that road, and when he sees this man lying in the road, he passes by on the other side. It was probably easy for him to justify that. I'm busy. I have obligations and duties. If I touch a dead body, I become unclean and I can't carry those out. Uh, Maybe somebody else will come along and handle this, but this really isn't for me. And so he had an opportunity to show mercy and he doesn't. And likewise, there's a Levite. He's a kind of associate in ministry to the priest. I mean, he, he was an assistant in the work. He lived in the temple for part of the time. He he likewise passes by identical language. Nothing I can do here or will do here. He doesn't want his hands dirty. And then verse three, 33, Jesus introduces the third man, a Samaritan. All right? And as soon as you hear the Samaritan, or at least the listeners in that day did, maybe their ears begin to tingle because the crowd he's talking to is Jewish. And frankly, they despised Samaritans because the Samaritan in their view was a half-breed, half-Jewish and half-Syrian. They weren't religiously pure. They weren't ethically pure. They, they looked down their nose at the Samaritans. And Jews are prejudiced against them. And so they would have anticipated probably Jesus to say something negative because that's what they would have said. But when the Samaritan came, as he journeyed, verse 33, he came to where this man was and he had compassion. He had compassion. It says he, he felt touched in the bowels of his gut, right? Down in the depths in the pit of his stomach, we might say. In the deepest part of him, he, he felt compassion. Therefore, verse 34, he, he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal. And that means, of course, that the Samaritan is going to have to walk the rest of the way down the mountain or up while this man rides. And he brings him to an inn. And he takes care of him and he has him taken care of. Verse 35, the next day he gives two denarii to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. So verse 36, which of these, Jesus asked, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now the answer was obvious. But you understand that the lawyer to whom Jesus is telling this story had tried to be evasive about Who's my neighbor? I mean, this is actually how this all began. Because Jesus said, you and I are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we are to love our neighbor as ourselves." And the lawyer said, okay, but who is my neighbor really, right? Which is really his way of saying, I mean, when does this not apply? I mean, when do I, you know, don't have to love this certain kind of person, right? And Jesus' point, of course, is that there's never a time when I'm free from the obligation to love, particularly when I cross the path of somebody who's in need or misery. That's who the Lord would have me love and help. And so the lawyer knew who showed himself to be a neighbor, and he answered Jesus, the one who showed mercy. 
And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Now, that's not hard to understand as a story, but it is extremely difficult to live out. Mercy sees somebody who is in need, feels compassion for them, and it stops, draws near, reaches out, gets involved, bandages up, pays for, takes care of the one in misery. And that is what the gospel is to produce in us as we see that that is how God has treated us. And yet, as Christians, who among us would raise our hand and say, and I'm doing pretty well at that? Nobody's standing up here. We all fall short in many ways. This is in part why the early church taught that the Good Samaritan was Jesus himself. They interpreted this to to be Jesus, the Good Samaritan. How much like God this Samaritan is, how Christ-like we might say, who left heaven, came down to earth, the rough terrain where the bandits and the highway robbery robbers have destroyed and wreaked havoc and Jesus became a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief to give his own life on our behalf that he might set us upon a horse and bring us as the great physician to himself and rescue us from all our wounds while he himself bears all the cost right I mean, praise God Jesus is the good Samaritan and yet if we are becoming in any sense of the word Christ-like, then this is what God is seeking to produce and does produce in us as we understand the gospel. Why don't I show mercy? Because we say to ourselves, that person doesn't deserve it. Of course, that's the point. They don't deserve it. Or we say, they won't appreciate it if I do. If I'm going to show mercy, I want, I want a little, I want, a, I want a thank you, a note of gratitude. right? Or if I show mercy, they might take advantage of it. They'll abuse mercy, we'll say. Right? But, I mean, is it possible to abuse mercy? Everyone in this room knows it's possible to abuse mercy. Who's the chief culprit of abusing God's own mercy? Except us. We abuse it all day long. We take it for granted all day long. Or we say to ourselves, if I show mercy to them, well then I'm going to expect them to reciprocate. I mean, that's what I want. I want reciprocation. I scratch your back, you scratch my back. But if I think you're not going to be merciful to me, then I don't really want to be merciful to you. Why is it that you and I are so reluctant to be generous and helpful and compassionate and forgiving. Ask yourself, why am I so unlike Jesus? Well, how do you become merciful? Augustine prayed, command what you will, Lord, and give what you command. In other words, Augustine knew the truth. It begins with recognizing that you something you aren't. 
And that is to just own it. I'm not a merciful person. And then you confess that to God. You bring it to Him and you just say, Lord, I'm a hard-hearted, disinterested, indifferent to other people kind of person. And if they hurt me, I am so quick to be unforgiving or mean or harsh or hold a resentment. I'd just really like them to be hurt too. It begins with that kind of poverty of spirit. Own who you are and then repent and appeal and just say, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. He delights to be merciful to the needy. And that mercy begins to beget mercy in the hearts of his people. And what then do the merciful receive? And how important then is it? Two very quick questions to close. What do the merciful receive? God, it says, will be merciful to them. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be mercied. This is not meriting mercy. That would be a contradiction in terms. But it is saying, show mercy because you've been shown mercy. And in showing mercy, you prove you have received mercy. And in the end, you will fall into the arms of mercy. In other words, you find mercy at last on that great judgment day because mercy first found you and made you a merciful person. How important then is this? Sinclair Ferguson, I think, will tear us all apart right here. But he references... uh, the day before Pentecost when Peter spoke of the need for someone to replace Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of our Lord Jesus. And he quotes a psalm in doing so, appoint another to stand in his place. And that psalm goes on to say this, may his days be few, may another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. Inhabit. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. And let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. Why? For he did not remember to show mercy. That's how important it is. It means the difference between being like Judas... And being like Jesus. Blessed are the merciful. For they shall receive mercy. May God have mercy on us all. Let's pray. Father. Command what you will. And give to us. What you command. Have mercy. Forgive all our transgressions and our cold hearts, our hard hearts, our mean hearts. Forgive our weakness and failure. Forgive our foolish efforts. 
Forgive us that we're not like Jesus, but make us like Jesus, we pray. May the sweetness of his mercy to us be a delight to us. And then grant us delight in being so kind to others. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.